thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Monday to Friday, 9am to 12pm. This is Today with Kino Cummings on Cape Talk. And a very good morning to you. It is 23 minutes to 10. Now, Dr. Christmas is a very popular guy. Um, it's great to have you on, Chris. Yeah, good morning. I got this very desperate call last week from London. Uh, I think it was about two weeks ago. Uh, a friend of mine who happens to work for a company called AEG. Um, he's like, I see you connected to the naked scientist. We'd, we'd like to do work with him. You must get that quite a lot from people wanting, because you've created such a... A, 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 a wonderful platform that mesmerizes people. Um, do, do lots of people phone you and want to do corporate stuff and all sorts of other things? Just as an intro, a matter of well, um, you know, on and off, people do do get in touch about that kind of thing. To be honest with you, I've been totally overwhelmed this year because obviously. Mm. Uh, not only are we doing all the media side of things, but I'm doing all the virology yep. side of things as well. And so there has yep. been this collision of the two. And so I have been frantically busy and had ferocious numbers of emails. I'm trying to keep up and people are writing to me. People are tweeting at Naked yeah, Scientists. And I am trying to give people as much advice and information as I can. But I do miss a few. So um, I've got a system set up where if I don't see the email, then hopefully people who work with me will pick it up and they'll put it on our online forum because the Naked Scientist has got an online forum. It's called uh, it's at nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is a platform where the community help to answer questions, but then I come in and add additional information and, and moderation as well. So if you miss me and I dodge that bullet, then you can get onto the forum <laughs> and they'll get me there and, and put me back in the front line. So uh, there are n- yep. numerous ways to get in touch, but I'm doing my best to try and keep up. But I do apologise if there's a delay with some people and um, and sometimes because of the sheer volume that's coming through at the moment, we are missing some. You've got so. your hands full, man. There's, there's no need to apologise. <laughs> You've got your hands full. Now, the one thing I want to hop straight into, and it's so we hear of people who've taken the vaccines, right? And you would have seen the the, the storm, and of course blown up by Facebook as well, um, of some people. And there was a doctor, I believe, I think it was in the United States, who died after taking a vaccine. And people are going, "How safe is this vaccine?" And I just wanted to put things into perspective and ask you that question. So we're hearing of deaths. People are looking into it. And now others are saying, well, I don't want to take it because it's killing people, Um, which I don't think. I think we need to look at the broad church of what's happening, how people have been affected. But I'll leave that one up to you. Well, of course, um, coronavirus is doing a pretty good job of killing people as well. And, And it all comes down to risk. Now, obviously, if you've got a track record of risk against constituents of a vaccine, reacting negatively to them then you shouldn't have that vaccine but on the other hand hundreds of thousands to millions of people i mean just in the uk more than four and a half million people have now received uh, the vaccines against coronavirus Mm. and and they're doing pretty well what spawned some of this was there was a story in the new york post and and other outlets about the experience in norway and in norway they had reported 23 deaths 
in recent weeks, and the deaths were mapping onto people who had recently had the vaccine. And of course, that rings alarm bells. And so people came in and investigated. But if you then take a step back and say, well, who are we giving the vaccine to? We're giving the vaccine at the moment as a priority to the oldest, the most frail, the most enfeebled, the most at risk individuals. And therefore, it sounds a bit morbid. But if you're if you're in that category, you have an above average chance of passing away anyway. And number two, under certain circumstances, if you're already in a very enfeebled state, sometimes the stress of any kind of medical procedure is enough to unfortunately push the body over the line that it can't take anymore. And the Norwegian authorities have actually investigated this and they have said, well, yes, in, in about 13 or 14 cases we've looked at, there probably is evidence to say that the side effects, mild as they were, of things like mild fever, diarrhoea, just fever and inflammation, which ensues for a short while after any kind of a vaccine, actually, could have accounted for why these people passed away, but they were very, very enfeebled. And they then said, we're not concerned in the sense that they're not concerned from a vaccination perspective, but they have urged their doctors to evaluate carefully those people they're giving the vaccine to, so that if you do have a person who's falling into that category, consider whether the better intervention for them is not a vaccine, but more stringent public health measures to keep infection away from them. And and it might come down to that being the choice that we make. But at the yep. moment, the the rate at which people passed away in Norway, given the relatively small number of vaccinations that have been carried out, like a few tens of thousands, if there was a death rate associated with that vaccine on the scale that the Norway data would say there is, then in the UK, we would have almost been killing more people than the pandemic has with that death rate, with a four and a half million people having been vaccinated. And in Israel, where they've got a couple of million people have already been vaccinated, quarter of the population, they would also be reporting a huge surge in vaccine related mm. death at that scale. And they haven't. So that gives us reassurance both by uh, proving that it's not the case and also questioning that it is the case. So at the moment, we're, we're comfortable that uh, the threat yep. posed by coronavirus is far higher than the threat posed by the vaccine. I thought I'd put some perspective on that, uh, or at least you put some perspective on that. Uh, let's go to Alan in Tamilview. We've got Martin in Club Hill. Alan, a very good morning, sir. Hi, good morning. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. Chris is listening to you. What do you think about this drug, ivermectin? And it's, think it can do anything with COVID virus? Yes, um, hello Alan. Uh, ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug. It's been around for a very yeah. long time. It's very cheap. It's well understood. It's licensed for use in that context. And as part of the hunt to find good drugs that might have as a chance side effect anti-coronavirus activity, people have been exploring the drug space, looking for agents that might happen to have that particular profile. And they have some evidence that ivermectin might fit the bill. What people have done is a whole series of very small studies. And the danger of small studies when you do this, and you don't do this in a blinded, placebo-controlled way, is they're very susceptible to the influence of bias. And by bias, this is not someone setting out to prove something is the case when it's not. It's just because of chance statistics or the way a study is set up that a trend can emerge or an apparent trend can emerge 
that actually is misleading. And so researchers are saying, well, we don't have enough strong, robust data yet. So what one researcher has done recently at the University of Liverpool is to say, well, one way around this is we can merge lots and lots of studies together so we get the power of the combined effect of all the studies. This is called a meta-analysis and see what that shows. And, and there does appear to be some degree of protective effect conferred by ivermectin in people acutely ill with coronavirus. Now, you know, that one swallow doesn't make a summer. You've got to be very careful how you interpret this. But there is certainly food for thought here, and people are actively pursuing this to, A, understand the biology. Is it biologically plausible that this drug could, as an off-target effect, have an impact on coronavirus? And will this actually translate clinically? People are looking into this at the moment. If it turns out that it's the case, then it would be great. It's a very cheap drug, and we understand it very well. It's already licensed uh, for safe Mm. use in humans. And so it's much, much less of a regulatory hurdle to translate that into the therapeutic position where you could use it for coronavirus. But remember, we've been down these roads before and they were blind alleys because with some of the antiretroviral drugs, the Chinese were trying lapinavir and ritonavir, a couple of HIV drugs, because they were thought to have some kind of activity against coronavirus right at the beginning of all of this, subsequently turned out that wasn't the case. And Donald Trump's favourite drug, hydroxychloroquine. This was also uh, touted as the next best thing since sliced bread and turned out again, thanks to work done in the recovery trial at the University of Oxford and, and a number of other studies have independently corroborated this since. No evidence of efficacy. So early days needs proper, rigorous study and reason to be optimistic there might be something there but one swallow doesn't make a summer, so we have to be cautious. Let's go to Martin in Clipheville. Hi there. How are you doing, Martin? I'm a right, Prince uh, Kamish. Uh, Dr. Chris, from one virus to another, maggots. Uh, the, the maggots, maggots always start off in dead bodies or whatever carcasses. Explain to me the whole process and where they go after that. I'll listen on the radio, OK? Thanks. Uh, how does the maggot go about doing its work? Hold on. Let me just take my earphones off. Uh, Chris? <laughs> Well, maggots, of course, are baby flies. They are larvae. They're the uh, first phase of the life cycle once the egg hatches. And they crawl through tissue, secreting digestive juices into the tissue and then sucking up the soup of digested dead tissue. And it's full of protein and nitrogen and other goodies that they need. And they grow a bigger and bigger maggot until they reach a threshold body size. And at that point, they trigger a pupation and the maggot secretes a hard outer shell which keeps the maggot as a nice soup inside protected by this hard outer shell while it rearranges its internal parts and organization to make itself into a fly and after a certain number of days later the mature fly bursts out of this chrysalis and it goes off and finds another fly and the two mate lay eggs in a nice juicy piece of food that uh, will support another generation of maggots and the cycle continues. Now when you have a wound, what actually attracts flies in the first place is that the wound, when you have a wound and it gets nasty and and manky and infected, is you get what's called devitalised tissue. Tissue that doesn't have a good blood supply begins to die and as it dies it rots and when it rots it produces various compounds and volatile chemicals that go into the air and they stink and they stink just like a rotting body would and of course flies make a beeline if that's the right word to use towards rotting bodies because they are 
a rich source of protein that will sustain a whole host of maggots because you need protein to build bodies and that's what flies need lots of protein and so they will home in on your wound and when you're not aware of it a fly will land in the wound and lay its eggs and then you hatch out that generation of maggots but while it sounds grim Actually, it turns out people noticed during the First World War that there were soldiers with horrible injuries who got infected in the trenches and so on. Some of those people who had maggot infestations in their wounds did much better than patients who didn't. And when people investigated, they found that the maggots actually were, through the action of secreting digestive juices and then sucking up all the debris, the maggots were actually naturally cleaning the wound. And this has now become relatively de rigueur. In in medicine, we have what's called larval therapy. And in people who have certain intractable wounds and particularly chronic ulcers, for example, that have been very hard to achieve healing, sometimes using this kind of therapy can help to put things right. And, uh, And so it's not always bad news if you get maggots in a wound. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, answering all your questions about everyday life as we move on to Denise in Tableview. Hi, Denise. Hi, Kina. It's wonderful to have you back. I'd just like to ask Dr. Chris, is is he able to tell me what ingredients are in the vaccine for the coronavirus? Hello, Denise. It depends which which vaccine. Yeah, it does depend very much on which vaccine. Which which one did you have in mind, or did you want me to overview the whole host of them? Um, Sort of. Yeah, sort of like for the. I know what's in the flu. Um, for the flu vaccines, um, I was wondering if it's more or less sort of the same ingredients. Right. Okay. Almost certainly not, Denise. And the reason is that most flu vaccine, some is made in the dish, but a lot of flu vaccines are made in eggs, and so therefore, uh, the flu itself, the flu vaccine, you grow the virus in chickens' eggs. And then you chemically brutalise the virus to smash it to pieces. And this is called split vaccine. And you've basically got inactivated hunks of virus that you inject into people along with some little bits of egg. So if you have an egg allergy, it can count you out for a flu vaccine. And those bits of virus that you inject, that shrapnel, is pulled into cells at the site of injection and carted off to your lymph glands and used to educate your immune system what flu virus particles look like. There are some projects to develop coronavirus vaccines that work in a similar way. They don't grow them in eggs, they grow the virus in cultured cells, but they do smash apart the virus particles afterwards. But the currently licensed coronavirus vaccines don't work in that way. The way the currently licensed ones, which include Pfizer's vaccine, the Moderna vaccine in America, and AstraZeneca's vaccine, they are completely different. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are what are called genetic vaccines. They work by taking a piece of genetic code that the virus uses to make part of the spike, the bits that stick out from the surface of the virus that it uses to infect you. This short piece of genetic code is wrapped up in an oily membrane and they make billions of these tiny particles which, when you inject them into the body, are picked up by cells and then the cells read the instructions in that short piece of genetic code which hangs around in the cells for just a short space of time and the cells then make the outer coat of coronavirus and it's as though you injected that protein into the body because they use it to educate the immune system what that particular crucial bit of the virus looks like so you can make immune defences against it. In the case of the AstraZeneca vaccine what they've done is to take a cold virus that causes colds in chimpanzees 
very closely related to us chimpanzees, so therefore their viruses can also infect us. But they've used that so that we have never seen it before, so we don't have any immunity to that virus, which would otherwise block it getting in. They've disabled it so it cannot grow in the body, and they're using it like a Trojan horse, where they put inside that Trojan horse the genetic instructions for how to make the outer coat spike protein of coronavirus and then when you inject that virus it can't grow in the body but it can carry that message into cells immediately at the site of injection and deliver that genetic instruction how to make the outer coat of coronavirus and again that's then used to educate your immune system what the coronavirus outer spike protein looks like and therefore you make a neutralizing response to protect you should you run into the virus for real subsequently. Now, there's a, a video that I received as well, Chris, and we're going to go to Josh, but just a quick one. A video that, that I received of a doctor apparently um, reporting to politicians in, I'm not sure which forum, saying that aluminum, in, there's, there's aluminium in, 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 in some of the coronaviruses, and he says, but these are nanoparticles, nanoparticles, and it's not the same as the aluminium that, that, that we understand. And he said, but the problem is, and this is why I want to debunk it if it's false or, you know, confirm it if it's true. With these nanoparticles, they could find their way to the brain. And those nanoparticles shouldn't be in the brain. He says they haven't studied where the nanoparticles actually move towards. Does that make sense? Um, I, I don't know the story specifically. But what I will say is that we're being deluged in nanoparticles all the time. And the thing, the elephant in the room is when you go walking down the street and you see a truck go by that's belching out black smoke. And believe me, I've spent enough time in traffic in Joburg to know exactly what that's yep. like. Um, <laughs> the, the nanoparticles coming out of those engines that go into the air, they will stay in the air for a considerable period of time. And when you breathe that air in, we've got evidence. In fact, there was a study published in uh, in a couple of years ago in London where they were taking the placenta from women who just had their baby, and of course the placenta, the afterbirth, comes out after the baby, that was the baby's tissue seeing the mother's blood, and it's therefore a good index of what's going around in the bloodstream. They could find particles of London pollution in the placenta, showing that this was getting out of the air, into a mum's lungs, across her lungs into her blood, round her bloodstream, into the baby's placenta, across the placenta... Some of the particles were lodging in the placenta, but then others would be going around the baby's body inevitably, wouldn't they? So that is something we are being deluged in all the time. And those nanoparticles from engine pollution can trigger systemic inflammation in the body. And there is a, a range of evidence for why this is bad on many levels. So the risk from a tiny dose of a vaccine is inconsequential when compared to us being deluged in a very real threat. And the World Health Organization rank bad air as one of the leading causes of loss of life internationally every year. So if we want to focus on something that really, really matters yeah. and really, really has lifelong effects and really, really, really causes serious loss of life, then air pollution needs to be at the top of our list everywhere. Sanity prevails on a society that spends too much time on Facebook a lot of the time. Thank you, Chris. Let's go to Josh in Rondebosch. Hi, Josh. Hello, Chris. Um, I was some time back, I was hanging up washing about 20 yards away from my cottage. 
And while I was doing this, I, I heard a noise in my head. So I was listening to a radio station. Quite strange. Anyway, I finished hanging up the washing, went inside to my cottage, and my radio was slightly on. It was making a crispy sound, so I turned up the volume. And it was the same voice on the radio that I was hearing in my head. So I thought, whoops, okay. And I consulted two friends, uh, the one a scientist and the other one a woo-woo new ager, <laughs> Jane. And I said to her, Jane, <laughs> what, what was going on? She said it was your, uh, your quantum consciousness which was connecting with your past type of stuff. Tony Owens, the scientist, said, okay, I'm going to ask you three questions. Were you barefoot? Yes. Uh, what was the weather like? He said, um, I said, it was sort of a bit damp. He said, have you got fillings in your teeth? I said, yes. He said, okay, have you ever built a crystal set? And I remember my dad teaching me how to build a crystal set with um, earthing it and uh, aerials and a, a cat's whisker and a copper tube. He said, what, what has been happening is that you have been acting as a crystal set. You were picking up because of the environment, because of your, uh, the chemicals in your mouth and your fillings. You were acting as a crystal set. And you were picking up some radio station. Is that possible? <laughs> wow, we have our own <laughs> antenna phoning in. Uh, Josh, it's, it's an intriguing thought. And rather than uh, rush through that in a couple of, like a minute or two, what I'd like to do is actually see if I can come up with some some really decent explanation and evidence for why it can or cannot work like that. So with your permission, I'll take that away as homework and actually give you a decent answer as to how this can or can't happen and to what extent that may or may not be true next week, if that's okay. It's fine. Josh, so we'll, we'll, we'll get you back on next week. Uh, just to hear Chris's explanation to that wonderful, wonderful question, okay, if, by the way. If, if, if his answer is negative, I'd better go and see a psychiatrist. Yeah, that's what I was no, going to no, say. No. You, can, you can get ready to <laughs> book your appointment. Um, well, that's good, Kino, because we've got one listener next week. So that's a good start. <laughs> we'll we'll exactly. work up from there. And if he's right, by the way, we'll also have an antenna. We'll get him to stand on the building. Uh, but Chris, as always, great chatting to you. Uh, stay safe. Just regards to your family as well. And I look forward to chatting to you next week. Yeah, thanks, Kino. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. That is Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, right here on 567 Medium Wave Cape Talk. I'm Kino Cummings with you all the way through until midday. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.